Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jean-Marie Deschamps of Exporter Domain at Savour Collection. Hello, how are you? I am good. So you live in Bone now, which is in Burgundy, but you grew up near Sancerre in the Loire Valley. Yes. Uh, my family is from the 1190s in Loire Valley. We are 20 kilometers east of Sancerre, along the Loire River. And in every village, we have a tomb with the Deschamps family and including the first mayor of Nevers, who had been killed by the revolution. Your family did multiple things. One of the things they were involved with was forestry, and the other was raising the cattle traditional to the area. Absolutely. We are a kind of very French traditional family. Part of the family were military. My uncle was a general. Some uncles died during the war. We had farms part with corn, wheat, the classical cereals, which you find in Loire Valley, as well, my grandfather and my father developed the Airbook Charolais, which is these white cows which you see in the center of France all over. And our job was to select the quality of these cows to get the best of the cows, the best of the structure, get the best meat for eating. And the other part is, of course, the forest. We have forest in Loire Valley, not very far from Troncé. And on the other side of the Loire, you have the forest of Bertrange, which are classical on the Coopers. So we do oak trees, but we also, in relation with the subsoil, we can have pine, we can have different trees because you want to make oak tree everywhere, but if it's too humid, not enough strong, not enough depth, not enough clay, the oak trees will not be good, not be straight, which is very important if you want to use that for furniture and big buildings. When you see the castle today, you have this big oak tree or chestnut tree in a certain way. You have to look at the terroir to grow the trees the right way for what you want. Yes. My brother will now computerize the terroir. Before it was a background experience. This tree don't work. This other tree on a circle don't work there. So they were changing the plantation. And also in old days, most of the time they were using mother nature to replant. When now we still use it, we have natural plantation, but sometimes we change the oak trees for pine or chestnut just because it's more adapted to the subsoil. Because if you have not enough clay and it's too rocky quickly, the oak tree will struggle and will be very strong, which is great but also will be quickly old because the structure of the wood will be too difficult. If you make a comparison, 
In Burgundy, you have some vineyards where the vines are more straight, they are more high, and some other looks kind of very terrible and not straight, and uh, we will have the same. That's Except he don't treat 150 years and can't make a production every year. It's a long-term business. Yes. Oak tree, the best is 150 years to 200. Everybody speak about 250 to 300. We have a few, but it's not the best, to be honest. You have nodules in the middle of the wood, so it will be adapted. Because during this 150 years, you will have some work. You will have to go every 20, 25 years through your forest and clarify the bad tree already because they are too close, because uh, two branches are mixed and they will never develop straight, or because we had a wind which makes the tree falling down. Also, we have to clean and to make everything. It's not uh, put a little tree and grow for 150, 200 years. No, no, no. It's work, following, taking care. So your childhood was really in the farming life? Yes, absolutely. My father every day was going, and uh, when we were there as kids, we were going through the farm, visiting the cows, visiting the sheep, we had sheep, some horses, and visiting the forest. I remember as a little child, being the only girl with boys, he was taking with me and he was telling me, we go to see the little fox, which will not eat you, be sure. <laughs> that was a good memory of my father. He sounds like a pretty cool guy, honestly. He was a cool guy, and um, he died too early. And as kids, when you are raised with this kind of personality, you don't realize because it's part of your everyday life. I realized that when he died, when at the church you had the highest people of the administration, the officials and everything, but you are also the Madame Vatan, the tenant of the wine bar in Chavignol. And she told me, your father, we called him the white wolf because he looked like a wolf, but he was white because he was a very nice wolf. Was she related to Edmond Vantan of the Vatan Sancerre? Yes. But don't ask me more details because the Vatan family, it's in every tree, every corner, you have a Vatan in Sancerre. <laughs> So eventually you decided to leave that area and go to business school in Paris. And why did you leave the Loire? When you are from a traditional family, the oldest son takes the job. He has a title and he takes the job. As a girl, at this point, my cousin was doing business school. I thought it was interesting. But you need to know, with my cousin, same age as me, we are the first generation of women working, which changes things. But my father, when I say I would love to make a, what we call in France, prépa which is business school, he said, yes, okay, find it, and that's no problem, we will follow. I think I would have told him, Papa, I would love to be a farmer. I am not sure he would have been happy or would have understood so in that time, maybe your route as a female would have been to get married, have some kids, stay around the house. But you decided instead to get a professional career. And yes. that was kind of a change for the era. Yeah, it's a change. And it's funny because all my first cousins, girl, we are only four girls, four 36 cousins. But we all had great career. But my father did not knew that because he died before, but my uncles and aunts are very, very proud of all the girls, how it is today. So you went to Paris, and while you were in business school, you met your husband, Henry. Yes. He was living in Bonn. So for one year and a half, I was still working in Paris, moving to Bonn, and, uh, you know, it's not so easy. So you go, I went to Bonn. I started a marketing company, which was more a consulting company. 
to be honest, I did a bad experience with uh, my friend we shares. We had uh, difficulties on that. Uh, he left, and uh, me, I started uh, to do something other. And I, my first market was America. I thought America was very interesting. So that could be a place for me. And uh, also, to be honest, I thought they would be more open to a woman. That would have been Burgundy in the 80s, right? And yes. you were working for a negociant that made wine and then also purchased in wine. And then you were working in export sales. Absolutely. And working close with the growers because you speak for the grower at a certain point. And they need to trust what you say. They need to have confidence that you understand their position, their philosophy, their work, why they did wall cluster, which was not trendy at this time, but wall cluster, this vintage, how are the stamps, how are the seats, how are the pub, hey, all these details. And to be very close for that with them. And that was the kind of revelation also for me. I mean, it must have been a difference, though, moving from the Loire and the agricultural world of forest and cow breeding to Burgundy and the agricultural world of mostly the vine. I mean, there were other crops, but... Yes and no. I think my advantage has been, I have been working, watching the weather on everyday basis. I saw my father running, say, we need to treat, we need to do that, we need to do that. I have no time. Play yourself. So that's a real common, it's crop. Of course, I had to learn the vines because I had not real experience. I had to learn everything which will be influenced from March to harvest the grapes. What are the consequences? of a dry period about the tannins or how the grapes could become smaller, millerandage, why at this time? What is the effect of hail on the grapes? So you worked in that export for the negociant for about 10 years. Yes. I started between 83 and 84, early 84. And then I move on between 93 and 94. Just by philosophy, because Henry wanted to be more on volumes. When Mia was passionated by these growers, I met great people, you know, Henri Jaillet, Paul Pernaud, Bernard Michelot, Bernard Dubreuil, all these people who influenced my life in a certain way and also the fact that I wanted to defend them and continue. So let's talk about some of those people. So one of the first people to call you was Jean Mayo, which yes. would be now Mayo Camusé. Yes. That was something, a great honor in a certain way, and also a great challenge. I was looking for new estates because I have no background. He heard about me. And I remember he came in my office and said, you know, we want to change the domain. The domain was mostly sold through the trade. We want to become a real, real domain, officially well-known like we have it now. What do you do? And I remember I started with my little bottle samples going in America. And when I came back, we had the meeting, and it's a moment which was important for me. I told him, you know your label. Nobody will recognize. If you want to become a famous Estates, it's work in vineyards, work in bottles, in winemaking like Jean-Nicolas is doing now, everything. But it's also a label. And I say, I am not a designer, but do it clear, simple, elegant. Originally, it was a much more simpler label that sort of had a crest on it. It was especially a label which was owned by a printer. You know, many printers have a range of selection of labels, which you can't develop something because you can lose your personality very quickly and not having your own label. 
And so Jean Mayo had sharecroppers. Absolutely. But he kept his own domain. And then as he decided to commercialize more of his own product as opposed to keep it for himself, these are the kinds of questions that come up. I think it's a family decision because to get back your vineyards, despite you are the owner from a sharecropper, from a farmer, you have to have good reason. And you have to put somebody from the family in charge. So Jean Mayo wanted to do that and was thinking to his son and studying how he could manage that, what would be the best, what was the best to help Jean-Nicolas when he took over. He put Henri Jaillet in parallel for a few years. Henri Jaillet, with his experience of former grower since so long, one of the people that Jean Mayo engaged to be a sharecropper of the vines for certain of his parcels was Henri Jaillet. So Jean-Nicolas was Jean Mayo's son. Yes. And Henri Jaillet was the sharecropper of certain of the vineyard parcels that the Mayo family owned. Yeah. They also had the Tardy family working for Absolutely, Tardy, Fourois. And so I think you met Henri Jaillet. Yes. So what was I he like? I had this chance. I think he's more famous now he was very humble at this time. He was very dedicated to his vineyards. When you wanted to meet him, you have to come after 6 p.m. or 6.30 because I am in the vineyards with my wife. For me, the memory, it's a common sense. Between know-how, farming, working hard, you could see that on his hand. As well, being smart and respecting the grapes. After it was vinification, but respecting the grapes. Do what you have to do to get these grapes. I feel like he was one of a few people who really welcomed you into Burgundy and showed you different things about tasting, like Paul Pernod, Bouzereau, yes, Lafouge, yes. and Jacques Lardier. Yes. They spent time. When you discover all the terroir of Burgundy, it's not so easy because you discover Puligny with one. You discover Pernod Vergeles with other. It's difficult to, it's a grape. You know, you are Chardonnay, you are Pinot Noir. But in the meantime, you have a difference. And you have the difference of soft soil. It's not so easy to associate quality of grape, quality of wine, which makes that. You know, and when you are in a teeny path, in Burgundy and uh, with a bottle of Corton of this one and Corton of this one on the other side. And you taste the two, you say, there is just a path, maybe two meters down and a fault which you see on the top of the vineyard. And you just realize, but it's, it takes time to understand or to memorize. It takes time. And then, of course, you have your own taste. I prefer that. I prefer that. And you have a taste which evaluates through the years. And one of the things I'd say, I mean, we'll circle back to some of those people, but one of the things I'd say about your taste is that it's not one of trend. I've noticed in your selections over time, you don't move with the fad. You seem to be picking estates on the farming and on the personal rapport that you have with them. And then a sense that this is what you're looking for. But it's not based on fad trend and doesn't move a lot with the times. I think you have many, many in the world. In general, you have many Chardonnay, many Pinot Noir, especially Chardonnay, of course. In Burgundy, we have a teeny territory which has something different. And a grower is important when he works native yeast of course, and pick native yeast and extract what Mother Nature gives to him on this vintage, not to try to standardize, which sometimes I say Coca-Cola wine. Uh, You don't have the raw material. You don't have the same skin every year. You don't have the same acidity. You don't have the same pulp. I remember meeting a nose and the guy was running the department of cakes, Krakot. 
tiny cakes which we eat at breakfast sometimes. The kids can eat them, and it's a little um, croustillant. And the guy told me, oh, you know, first I was surprised why this kind of biscuit need a nose. A guy who works in aromas. Yes, exactly. And he said, but you know, every time when the flower is arriving, it's different in relation where it comes from. And every year is bringing us a different quality, a little more humid, a little less humid, a little more of that, a little more burn. And we try to use as natural as possible with these flowers. So I say, you know, being a nose in Burgundy, it's good. Because there were a few things that were happening. In the 70s, you had people working more and more with clones. You had people working more and more with selected yeast. Into the 80s, people talking about cold macerations like guillacad. You had people getting more enthused about new oak barrels. So those trends were kind of swirling up by the time that you started your own export company. First, you had the power of products in vineyard, like herbicide. It's so easy to put your herbicide, not to plow. And you don't realize in long run maybe the consequences of putting herbicide or using herbicide a number of times per year. It's one thing. The other thing is treatment. Yes, it looks more efficient on mildew. It looks more efficient on mold, on something, on that. And you don't realize. And then 76, I started after 76. And 76, for me, was a, a wake-up for Burgundy. Because it was a vintage when it was no rain from the 31 of May to September. Which means at this time, you were listening to the consultant of the product. They say, to be protected, you have to cover your vineyard every 14 days. And every 14 days, 15 days, the grower boom, jump in the tractor and were doing the treatment. During this time, no rain. Never the product has been washed. And some of them wake up at harvest and say, well, why my wine don't ferment? I never had so much problem. I never had. Of course, it's not the same structure of grape because it was no rain. Louis Guru told me, Jean-Marie, to make a great vintage, you need sun, but you need water on the way of rain. He was right. And you had many growers at this time, they say, we are stupid. We have green leaves, but we put too much potassium. We have that, but we do that. And then we have problem in vinification. So in 78, 79, 80, 81, they were still talking of that. So me, when meeting people of the wine in 78 and starting to work in the wine business, to be surrounded by the wine business in uh, 80, when I came living in Alos Corton, and then starting to work in 83, 84 in the wine business, they had all these growers were waking up. Recently, I was with Jean-Paul Magnin with a very tiny estate in Moray Saint-Denis with 5.5 hectares, which is uh, 14 acres. It's very tiny. And he's retired. And one day I was waiting and he said to me, Jean-Marie, what do you think about all these people who are talking about plowing, putting picture of horse in their brochure and everything? And I say, I think it's great. It's super. No more herbicide, no more. It's great. And he said, you know me, I remember when his grandfather, his father, never, never, and him, never used herbicide of their life. And they were still plow. They were still, in some case, putting out the grass between the vines by hand or by a little tool. And he said, now everybody make a big noise. And me, I remember... My parents were considered like uh, gypsies because I was, they were not using herbicides. They were not using chemical. So you see, you have a turn on that. I think you've probably seen those kinds of turns on not just one topic, but on several, really, in the course yeah. of Burgundy. 
you have that. You have ACAD, like you said, which was uh, cold fermentation. He went too far, but in the meantime, he bring the cold system. In many work, you have a challenge, which is you start something, you go far, 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 and then you back up. And uh, you have that. You have wall cluster. Now it's trendy. Of course, horses, horses is great. I love them, but they are slow. We need to be honest. They also are expensive because it takes time. And the grower will use that or on their first grand grand cru, or also on vineyards where they cannot go by tractor because it's too dangerous with a double slope like Pomarcharmo. So just to circle back for a second to some of those people who are sort of instrumental for you. I mean, what was Paul Pernault like? Paul Pernault is a white winemaker. For me, he's a Bible of Burgundy. You have the impression he met everybody, especially in Côte de Beaune. And um, he's associating modernism and classic sex. And I think that's the nice switch with him. This experience. He's very concerned by the weather. He is all the time, when I see him very often, end of August, before harvest, I ask him, How do you see the vintage? So we are 10, 15 days before harvest. And he piles up everything which happened during the year. If it was a dry period, if it was a wet period, if it was on this vineyard, that. And I think for him, it will give him a chance to assort it, to make his picker working differently, to press differently, to make more or less time of débourbage. I would say now it must be 66 vintage. So he saw a lot of them. And he has also his own things. I remember when a few years ago we had frost on Friday Easter. And he said to me, do you have growers who plow or who work on Friday Easter? I said, yes. And have they been hurted by the frost on Easter? I said, yes, of course. Well, we never plow on Friday Easter. It's a day when we respect our religion. He's in touch with some of those Things yes. that maybe, you know, as wine has become more of a business in certain respects. That yeah, and some people lose that. On the meantime, I think there is a young generation now who is back to that, back to this tradition, back to the, with uh, organic and biodynamic, back to the moon. You don't do that, don't work on vineyards on these days because it will not be efficient. So you, you have today a generation which is double, which has modern and antiques. I mean, it's sort of amazing the years that your career covers because you sort of watched it go in one way and then come back another because you get involved in the 80s when those sorts of things are not to the fore looking at the antique techniques. And then now the new generation is very interested in them. So I feel like you've seen the circle. But it was also choice when ACAD was very popular. For me, it was a way to standardize the wine, to sulfur too much, to extract overripe. I'm sure he has some of these wines have their touch, have their quality. But the other thing was when Dominique Laurent, when we call him double oak, when you racked after Malot lactic, you put back in new oak. For me, it's do we drink oak or do we drink wine? I think a lot of times it seems to me that you're tasting texturally as opposed to fruits. Maybe. It's more difficult for me to, to know that, to have this perception. It's true that I try to get balance and equilibrium, including if the equilibrium, you could see it immediately. But sometimes you have wines which show fruit immediately which will more or less disappear after when some of them are in a screen, a little narrow. When in six months or one year or two years, I believe, I could be wrong, I believe that this quality will be seen in the wine in our glass. 
because that's the final things. And I feel like you'd have to believe that because you work with certain producers that the wines take a while to show, like Lamarche. Yeah. At Lamarche, you have, uh, talking about his story, you had Henri Lamarche, which I met when I started. But I did not really know him, honestly. I was a little uh, kid at this point. <laughs> and he, I'm sure he was seeing me as a kid going in the wine business. But he spent time to also show me some vineyards like La Grande Rue or La Croix Rameau. And then you had François. François, he was different from his father with extraction, with power. But in the meantime, already no herbicide as possible. And then now you have a new generation with Nicole, who is a woman. Nicole has no rules, but she gets her personality. She is organic and she could be crazy in a certain way, but crazy smart. In the meantime, I don't have enough experience yet with Nicole. You know, I will maybe in 10 years say, well, it's the same. Not exactly because Nicole especially does a little wall cluster which was not done by Francois before at all. Francois was distilling 100% when Nicole is putting some wall cluster, which she chose cluster by cluster. The extraction is the same. And both were bottling non-fine, non-filtered. So you have a lot of common points despite Nicole say, I did my revolution. <laughs> One of the other key relationships in your life has been Boozero. Yes. And so what did you take from Mr. Boozero? Your life is not only business. Your life is also you give up to your town, to your society, to your people around you. And Michel Boozero's he really gave me that. Uh, also, trying to make perfection in the wine. He also, you know, when we had this premature oxidation, for him, one and is joined by Paul Pernod on that. They said at this time, everybody had a Wilmes press. And everybody was telling, we have to be very clean, we have to take care. And they were with this press, a pneumatic press. They had a very gentle press. And both of them are sharing the question, do we lose something on the pressing? Because they noticed that the people who had still vertical press, they did not get premature oxidation. So in the 80s and then into the 90s, a lot of people were changing their press from the old vertical presses into a gentler horizontal press. Yes. And more adapted to the quantity of crop per appellation. On a pneumatic press, you can adapt the balloon. You inflate the balloon more or less. If you have a big press, it's more complicated when you have vineyards where you make potentially five, six barrels. It's not so easy. So some of the domains were moving to the system because they wanted to handle the grapes more gently and because they wanted to customize the size because they were maybe using smaller quantities, and so they wanted to have a press that could more fine-tune that quantity. Yes, and it was easier to clean. And so what this generation of Vigneron has said, Paul Pernod and Bouzereau, is that maybe this change in the pressing led to premature oxidation problems in the 90s. It could be one reason. It's a question. Yes, it's a question. Because when they were still using the old vertical press, they had nothing. And the other thing about it was that people were pressing very clean and using less solids. So yes. they had less lees. And then the question was, were these wines holding up in the same way as the great white Burgundies of, say, the 70s that these gentlemen would have known, right? Yeah. Still today, there is still a lot of mystery about that because all the top domain in white are still continuing to research. Of course, you have the core. You have the sulfites, which we put very low, and now we raise a little. You have some growers that speak, does this new treatment, which we are using on the vineyards, despite the organic, could have a little consequences. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a lot of possible reasons, but that generation was wondering if it may really have to do with pressing as one of the reasons. It was one of their questions. And Paul Pernod's particularly well-known for Batar Maroche and Bienvenue Batar Maroche, right? Yes, and Folatière. If you were to distinguish between Bienvenue and Batar, what would you say is the difference? Take your time with the Batar and give a chance to the Bienvenue to come. But the Bienvenue, for me, like 2017, I love the Bienvenue. Maybe a little better than the Batar, but I'm not sure I will say the same thing in five years. People say Batar is more complex. I don't know. They don't have the same complexity. Fuletier, which is a premier crew that's nearby, is known to be a particularly rocky soil. Which is interesting in Fuletier, it's a large vineyard. And it's large, long, and high. On the highest part, you are over a fault. You have no soil. You are on the rock. So you have a huge difference. High different Paul Pernod, yes. But which I like in his Fuletier is that he has three vineyards in Fuletier. And he associates the three with this major part, which is parallel to the subsoil on the low part. Each of them gives something. And Folatia is up also. It's a little cooler because the wind is different. You have a little more influence from the valley of Blagny. Well, somebody else that played an impact in your career was Jacques Lardier, right? Like sort of yeah. later in your career? Jacques Lardier, you know, first he's a kind of god in the wine. He did a lot. He uh, pushed also some of his convention, like a biodynamic, like timing around a cuvier, all these things which looks now okay because we are studying biodynamic, we uh, read about it, we see some people who are trying a lot of things. At this time, no. It's one thing. And the other thing, for me, he had very simple explanation. He had so much experience. I remember the last testing which I got at Jado with him and we were testing different white and suddenly he was telling me you see that this vineyard you have that this stone plus that this wind plus that which was explaining why it was like that including telling me maybe I will put it on my Puligny Premier Cru no name or Puligny Village no name. Not individual, because he thought it would be the more complex. Everybody is very sensitive to single vineyards. I think it's great and it's perfect because you have to be perfect to succeed. But sometimes it's very good and it's a new revelation to blend. So you have another producer in the Cote de Bonne that I like a lot, and which is Guy Amio. And that's in Sassan Montrachet, and then they also have some high-end crews as well. Yeah, Chassan Montrachet, Saint-Aubin, Puline de Moiselle, and of course, two barrels of Montrachet. He especially do very long élevages. If I compare, you know, with Maltrois, who are bottling after one year, is white wine, but who use more oak when uh, Fabrice Amio will age longer on lees. It's different style on uh, each of the grower, each of the domain. And it's what makes Burgundy fun. You don't want to have the same taste and drink the same wine all the time. What have been the principles that you've selected Burgundy Estates on? What have been the things that were important to you when you were choosing to work with a domain? Good farming. Confidence on this good farming. It's not a talk. And pick. Native yeast, 100% malolactic, not induced. Now, as less as possible, batonnage. And if possible, bottle non-fine, non-filtered. In white, I am more reserved. In red, it's easier. And it's also express your terroir and your vintage. 17 is not 16, 16 is not 15. And if you start to standardize that, you will manipulate the wine and you will lose the good character of 
each of these vineyards and also give the time to the wine to come. You have many, many good investments. You know, I think pneumatic press have been good. Temperature control, that's a revolution in terms of new system, new way, easier to control, Wi-Fi transmission. Every year you have something. You have another thing for me which has been a big thing is pump. You have new pump which are very gentle to move the wine from barrels to tank, tank to barrels. What are some vineyards in the Cote d'Or that have become real markers for things you enjoy, things you think about, and things you seek out when it comes to wines from Burgundy? Saint-Aubin. Saint-Aubin, you have great wine, great value, ready in three, four years, great pleasure. You have Marsanet on the opposite side. Marsanet with the development of the single vineyards with all the work done by the grower to get maybe one day their premier cru classification. Seeing an unknown appellation which, which is lost and which is a shame, it's Allos Corton and Ladois. Allos Corton, you have great wine. You have different styles of growers. Some of them are very pure. Some others are a little more rustic. And Ladois, good wine, very earthy, a little licorice. Pernod Vergelès. You need to like the wine in altitude. You need to like the wine with minerals. But it's nice wine. Chevray-Chambertin, we forget to speak because it's large, it's big, it's nice, it's so well-known. For me, one of the magic vineyards is Castier. Chevray-Chambertin, Castier, Petit Castier. There is something on this appellation which I like. It's not Clos Saint-Jacques, it's not Combo Moine, but you have something there. If you were to look back over the run of vintages since 76 to now, what have been vintages that have stuck with you in your mind? Of course, I had a chance to start a lot with 78, so I was lucky on that. Then 84. 84 was a difficult year. For sure, I had not enough experience fully to understand, but that was difficult. Uh, 89 and 90. 89 being large crop, fruity, pleasant, drinkable, with pleasure. 90, yes, you could drink it, but you had the structure. But the good surprise is 91, because 91, now are showing very well, and it's interesting. 98, start to move. 88 also. I had recently some 88. It was starting to move. And 99, it's a little like 89 with a little more structure. 2005 in red. You had the deepness. You have a, it's a little like 2015, but 15 has a little more... Bling, bling. Hollywood. <laughs> bling, bling. Something Hollywood style. Then uh, 2007, nice to drink now. A vintage which surprised me recently, 13. They were a little austere, and now they show well. And very often I am surprised when I go in restaurants and take a 2013, which I have a very, very pleasant evening. One memory also is Von Romane Lechaume 2001. Every grower who produced Von Romane Lechaume 2001 made a great wine. Some vintage, you have the perfect match between weather, between the location, between the vineyards, despite the different vinification. It's not one grower. Something that you do that you've really stayed consistent at is buying from the hospice to bone every year. So you yes. buy a barrel at the auction. Yes. And when did you start doing that and why? For me, when I arrived in Burgundy, Burgundy was good for me. And with hospice de bone, we can have the admiration of the charity, the history going through the century. 
So it's something for me which I think we have to... I need to put my little stone. I don't have vineyards, but every year I can put a little stone buying some juice. One of the things that that allowed for, you know, buying from the Hospice de Bonne for so many decades is kind of an entree into Burgundy society for you. You became part of the weave of the Burgundians in a way that might have been a little bit more difficult for you if you were just coming from the Loire. Mm, Maybe that I don't realize. I'm not sure. I think in Burgundy, you have to be true. You have to try to be the most honest as possible and not to hurt. You have to respect the family, which are very important because everybody's cousin from somebody. Also, you know, <laughs> it's true. You, you have names which are all over, you know, the Rossignol, the Leclerc, you have uh, Cola, you have Buzero, all these uh, people who are part of the villages, part of the history of Burgundy. And we speak about one, you know, recently Hubert Rougeau died. He was uh, the mayor for a long time of Meursault, but he was also, um, he has a company with motorway, winery, all kind of thing. And you have to, to be part of that. You have to build. You are on earth to do something. You are not on, you can make money, yes. But if you don't do nothing, you... You are a pixel. So what's been the perception of the American market in terms of customers for Burgundy over the last 30 years? I mean, how has that changed? You have different steps. They wanted to know what they knew. So Bordeaux was big because they had history. It was big names. And these names were spread out everywhere. Then you had the big negotiator in Burgundy the largest, which were good, which were known because they had the same kind of strategy. Then you add another layer, which are the estates. These estates were mostly starting to bottle later because they started after the First War, but especially after the Second World War. You had many growers who started to bottle with the depression, because they could not sell, also they decided to bottle. And uh, don't forget, Confrérie des Chevaliers du Testament has been done because it was a lot of wine in the cellar of Burgundy, and they wanted to try a way to promote Burgundy, to make recognized, to make more. And it's not so easy with tiny domains, because you have 200 Cases at the dimension of America, it's big. It's nothing. It's big and nothing in the meantime. It's funny today when you travel, people tell you, oh, I remember when I started, I was buying Richbourg, I was buying this big name at this price. Why I did not buy 100 cases at this time? But you know, it's a life. I'm sure maybe in 25 years, we will say the same. We say, why I did not put 10 cases of each in my cellar. Today we complain because there is not enough exposure of some wines. People cannot afford. And you have rich people also which can buy everything they want. So it's a double market. America is a sophisticated market. They love good food. They love good wine. They love nice things nice car. So you have a market of excellence. But you have also some people who want to understand the lower level of the appellation to find the elegance and quality in wines they can drink. You can find, like we said, in Marsanet, you can find them in Oxidress, you can find them in Maconnet, you can go Chalonnaise, in Rully. Today, people, they learn about wine when we show them, well, here you test this appellation, this La Doie La Corvée, and this one, uh, this one, and it's not the same. Oh, yeah, it's not the same. More. And people discover the difference. So they are at this step at this point. 
Do we have many visitors? Yes. We have many, many, many visitors. Before we had the importer, we had some of the top sommeliers, we had some of the top retailers. Today, everybody wants to taste Burgundy, which is also complicated because we don't have the structure and the domains are farmers. So it's more complicated to get tastings. Of course, priority is to the vines. When you went to the States and you were trying to sell Burgundy in the 80s, what was that like? I was, I am Jeanne-Marie, I am selling French wine and mostly Burgundy. Uh, uh, that was finding importers, finding people who were accepting maybe to receive me and just trying to sell, knowing nothing about the market which was a good thing for me because knowing nobody, I had no idea about the company. Big, small, average, I was just I'm Jean-Marie, I said, Burgundy, what can we do? How can we do it? All these growers have this common point. Good farmer, native yeast, taking care of details with their own personality, appellation by appellation, and terroir by terroir and a personality which you will get today, tomorrow, and next vintage. And the thing about your selections these days is that it hasn't just been Burgundy. It's also been the Loire Valley, and it's also been Minervois and the Languedoc, and it has been Bordeaux, and it has been Champagne. So in those different regions, you know, your home base is in Bone and in Burgundy, but what have you seen? Burgundy and Loire are in a certain way the same thing. A Loire wine has been very quickly organic. They have some grapes which are easier to maintain. And uh, you have Sauvignon, but you have also all the Chenin. And Chenin Blanc is a magic grapes. When you pick, how you pick, you make different wines that give you an opportunity from the sparkling to the late, late harvest. In Bordeaux, you have different markets. You have the market of the Grand Cru, which I don't touch. And you have a few estates which are concerned by the subsoil, like everybody's concerned in Burgundy. They speak differently on the terroir because they have one point which we don't have, is they can blend grapes. When in Burgundy, we have no chance, or Loire Valley, most of the time we have no chance. Minervois, it's one domain. And it's a meeting. It's a very brilliant woman defending her terroir, defending the history of her subsoil. You are there, you are in the middle of nowhere, you are on rock, and you realize that she makes interesting wine. And she's also a source of old vines before clones. Champagne is Champagne Guy Charlemagne. It's a family estate also in Le Menil. And they are also very concerned by subsoil. It's a little more recent in terms of work. Don't forget, it was a war. And I am sure after the war, it must have been complicated to work the vineyards, to pull out all the stuff. You know, in terms of metal, in terms of bullets, in terms of when now everything is done and they really take care. I think also an evolution in Champagne, for me, it's the fact that before you had to pick green to get the acidity. When now, it's not true. It's you pick with a phenolic ripeness and with some acidity which is completely different. You don't consider, I will put 13, 15 grams of dosage if I can just put five. And somebody you work with that has been a real pioneer in terms of organic farming was Frick, right? Pierre Frick. Pierre Frick, yes, in Alsace. He's more than a pioneer. He's organic and biodynamic since 1956. When everybody thought he was uh, totally crazy, totally uh, non-realistic. And the other thing which was uh, his thing was to put 
capsule like a, a capsule of beer on his bottle and not a cork. He puts crown tops on the top of the bottles as opposed to corks. Yeah. It's like a popular fashion to do now with pet nets is to put yes. crown tops on. But this guy was doing it in the 80s and stuff. Yes, it came from him. So did Frick ever tell you some of his thinking in terms of converting the estate so early? Well, you know, Pierre Frick, it could be extreme uh, on many things. Good thing, and I can't agree on some other things. You know, I, I understand what, why, what he defends, which is good with people like him or Nicolas Jolie. It's they go to the extreme of their solution. And when you go to the extreme, you try, you lose, you win. And if you lose, you learn from your experience. If you win, you learn from your experience. And I think these guys are making the wine moving and the wine sinking. And they are courageous. So I think there are parallels, like you mentioned, between the Loire and Burgundy in terms of farming. Yeah. But in terms of the market, it seems like the price escalation has been a lot more for Burgundy than for the Loire, and that you can still find strong value in the Loire. And what are your thoughts on that? Sancerre and Pouilly Fumé, for me, were a family choice. I am coming from there. I support the region. Everybody was telling me, oh, you will forget us. You are in Burgundy. You will become snobbish and everything. Say, no, 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 no. But it's true. When you ship to export, you need minimum of volume, which you can get in Loire Valley, which you can't in Burgundy. In the meantime, in Burgundy, the problem are price of the land. The price of the land will create a minimum value for everyone, including Bourgogne, which represents 56% of the production. And the new price of the land, which has been paid, are just, I worry, because it will be continuing, maybe continuing with investors, continuing with big companies. Will Burgundy lose part of its fund? It's questionable. So how have you seen the price escalation in terms of your own career? Has it caught you by surprise? I think for me, it's caught me by surprise how much things have increased in price over the time that I've been in the wine trade. I think you had different step. You had not a lot of demand. Also, it was difficult to sell. Then Burgundy started to be popular because it was monograps. Then you had a gap between the good vintages and the lower vintages on perception, despite some of them were not true in terms of reality. So one of the things you said there is that it became more popular because of monograps. So what you're saying is that as the rise of varietal wines happened in the New World, so people were labeling with a varietal on the label, Burgundy was also understandable in this fashion because it was not a blend. Yeah, with a complicated point, which is, yes, you know the grape, but why you don't put the grape name on the labels and we keep the appellation and the terroir and not the grape because it would have been, I think, a disaster. But today the problem is offer and demand and with the difficult years which we got because of hail in some part of Côte d'Aubonne, frost everywhere, we lost volume. And the other thing which is a little under the radar are the age of our vines. When it was a study done by the BIVB, the Burgundy office, Burgundy in average is old, which is great because it makes good wine, it makes great wines. But at a certain point, the grower has to replant. Because if they don't do that, if their children want to keep up, they will have to pay heritage tax, but also they have to replant. And if they don't have incomes, it will be a complicated situation. Old vines produce less quantity. At the same time, if you take your vine out of production to replant, then there's no quantity for a while. So it's a balance. Yes. It's a reason why I think as a grower, you have to get an equilibrium. Okay, how much I have 10, 
20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. And what I need to replace? How I need to replace? Because you can have also an event which forced you. In um, 2016, I remember going to Paul Pernault. I said, oh, Jeanne-Marie, I pull out one third of the batard Montrachet. He said, what? Not possible. He said, Jeanne-Marie, they were totally frost. And my idea was to pull out in 2022, which means if I don't pull out, it's 16, no crop. 17, not sure that I will have a crop or I will have very teeny. 18, maybe a little. And what? I will pull out in 20, which means I will have lost three years of, of time for nothing. If someone were to come along now and you wanted to give advice to that person in terms of being a Burgundy exporter, now that you've done it for decades, what would you tell that person to think about in these days? Take your time. Respect the people you speak with. Respect their job. Don't try to change their vinification to make how you would like the wine, if you want that, become a negociant. If you want to work with growers, respect them and give them confidence because they are there on everyday base. We cannot be every day on every place, on every vineyard when something happens. But if they are good, which you believe on, they will make what has to be done, which will be Maybe to treat, maybe to cut the branches if the hail and broken, or and when they read their vineyards, what they can read. Trust them, respect them. It's not easy. It's a very competitive market now because you have people sneaking all the time. Uh, I will recommend to take care when they work about the shipment. It's something very important because when we check the provenance card on the palette, we could see the up and down temperature from the people who don't care. So it's important to care. I would say if they want old vintage, it's nowhere they buy it because today with the auction market, the wine go from LA to New York, New York to Hong Kong, back to New York, then resold, and it's the same bottle sold all the time, which I don't know how they age at the end, or they age quicker, that's for sure. Um, and be courageous, that's it. You have to work hard. What would you attribute your own success in the United States market to? What are some of the things that helped you when you were trying to sell to Americans? I think true. To be true, try to be true, and uh, work all the layer. Work the importer to sell and the distributor to sell and Salesforce at their layer and help the retailer if they want to promote and to educate their own customer and also receive people here when we can to spend some time and to make them learning this difference of subsoils is different. Because we have the support of the grower, we can do that. It's the reason why I respect a lot no visit during harvest, because it's not the moment. It's not the mind of the growers. They are with their grapes, they are with their tractors, they are with their team, they are with their vinification and the timing and everything. We have to respect Jean-Marie Deschamps values respect in looking for wines with truth in Burgundy, the Loire, and other parts of France. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Lévy. It was great. Thank you. Jean-Marie Deschamps of Domaine et Savour Collection, an exporter of French wines. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, 
alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode came together with a lot of help from the Wasserman family, who have helped countless writers and journalists learn more about Burgundy over the years. To be honest, considering I was not intelligent on the market, for me, Bordeaux was not a word. I had two words, which was Loire, because of my background, and Burgundy, because I was living there. But Bordeaux was not, I was not compete. I was not talking never about Bordeaux. You know, I have just three domains in Bordeaux. And I remember with Chateau Corono when we met a long time ago, and he said, uh, I am organic. Oh, that's interesting. Because it was in 97, it was early for Bordeaux. At this point, it was not. And uh, he came up through dinner. I, uh, somebody was speaking about Burgundy and uh, I was invited also. You know, I'm educated. I try to be polite. And, uh, and I finally, the person said something. I said, no. I told her, Madame, I think you have not been in Burgundy since 20 years. Because of that, because of that, because of that. And at the end, a gentleman came and said, who are you? And I am reminded. And uh, he said, you have to sell my wine. I say, what do you do? Bordeaux. I don't know nothing about Bordeaux. <laughs> and uh, I have Chateau Corono still today, which is a Bordeaux Superior Organic and Biodynamic, certified since 2000.